Welcome to episode 163 of Stageworthy. I'm your host, Phil Rickaby. Stageworthy is a podcast about people in Canadian theatre featuring conversations with actors, directors, playwrights, and more. This episode is going live on New Year's Day, so Happy New Year to you. I hope that you have a great 2019 ahead of you. Just as a note, uh, in case you're interested, and uh, you know, I find it interesting, uh, of course I find it interesting, January 5th is the three-year anniversary of Stageworthy Podcast. And so uh, if you wanted to, you know, say congratulations or happy anniversary, uh, you can find Stageworthy on all the social media platforms at StageworthyPod. And if you just want to uh, say the same thing to me, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Phil Rickaby. My website is philrickaby.com. The Stageworthy website is stageworthypodcast.com. And if you would, if you've been a listener for a while, you may, you've heard me say how important it is to rate and comment on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcast. Those ratings and comments are actually really good for helping new people find the show and and it helps to show support. So if you've been listening for a while, um, please feel free to go on your favorite podcast listing page and and uh, leave a comment or rating about Stageworthy Podcast. My guests are David S. Craig and Richard Greenblatt, writers and performers of Convergence Theatre's Athabasca, which runs as part of the 2019 Next Stage Festival, starting January 9th in Toronto. Okay. And um, if you guys could each just say your name so the listeners can identify whose voice is whose. Okay. Okay. My name's David S. Craig. Richard Greenblatt. Right. And the show is Athabasca. Athabasca. And <clears throat> so tell me about, about Athabasca. Uh, the title is, well, the Athabasca uh, region, of mm-hmm. course, is our famous oil-producing region in Alberta. Mm-hmm. It is uh, where our heavy oil comes from, mm-hmm. and uh, it is a source of great wealth to our country, and it is also um, the source of great great amount of carbon emissions mm-hmm. in, our, in our country. And tailings, ponds, and... Um, uh, water usage, mm-hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it is a source of wealth. It's also something that our country is discussing mm-hmm. uh, in, with regards to how we get this resource out of the country mm-hmm. through pipelines. Mm-hmm. And again, there's controversy about about that, about yeah. whether or we should if we, be... Or if we should be excavating at all. <laughs> yeah. Right. So uh, it started, really, uh, this uh, project, uh, David and I, and actually originally somebody else who has since dropped uh, out of it, but then uh, just just being kind of obsessed really with the issue of climate change mm-hmm. and why we seem to be incapable of acting in any strong way, either as a society, it's hard enough getting individuals to yeah. to act uh, even kind of on small levels, but certainly in terms of the huge uh, changes that we would have to make in terms yeah. of our lifestyle, in terms of uh, just how we live and yeah. how we get from place to place, et cetera, et cetera, and why we seem incapable of doing it. Mm. So we started, uh, especially when David and I started doing it on our own, and the fact that we're uh, uh, in our mid-60s and both white, and uh, it felt kind of right in a certain way of like that we were the perpetrators mm-hmm. of the situation that we're in now. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we wanted to create, I think it's safe to say, a kind of a debate but something that was extremely theatrical in that and personal right. in, mm-hmm. in that. And we found and bit by bit developed these two characters. So I play uh, a character called Max Krishnovsky, who's a uh, uh, an environmentalist, but he's a reporter right. for uh, a nature magazine. And David? I play Tom Patnode, who is the head of communications for a major oil company in Athabasca, in the Fort McMurray area. Mm-hmm. His head office mm-hmm. is in Calgary. But as the play progresses, we also find that he spent 15 years in Washington um, chairing a, um, a lobbying group, which was uh, lobbying the American government. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, so it pits these two people, 
uh, we won't give away too much of the of the plot of what actually happens, but it gets very exciting and it becomes, in a sense, it becomes like a life and death struggle, right. which we feel is a a, a very apt metaphor right. for uh, for literally the, the 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 issue itself is a life and death issue. So yeah, it's like an immovable force hitting hitting an uh, 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 stoppable object. Yes, yeah. You know, it's it's like the two sides. It's almost in our debate in the newspapers. It's almost the, uh, like the two sides aren't even talking together. We right. talk about climate change uh, in its own bubble, and then we talk about building pipelines in its own bubble. Mm-hmm. And um, really, these are are totally conflicting uh, approaches to our future. Yeah, that's yeah, true. Um, <clears throat> I was it. I, I I understand. And correct me if I'm wrong, that you're the first site-specific? Yes. For the next, for the next stage, stage, yes. How did that come about? How did you approach them for that? Well, um, uh, basically it was through our director and co-producers. Uh, so our director is Aaron Willis, who is one of the two uh, artistic co-artistic directors of Convergence Theatre. And so Aaron is directing it, and their mandate really is to do site-specific work. So, And I've worked both with him and his partner, Julie Tepperman, who's the other co-artistic director. Julie is also acting as our dramaturge on this. And uh, that's what they do. They do site-specific work. Uh, 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 the Gladstone Hotel, or uh, Aaron and I co-directed Yehud, which actually turned Theatre Passmaraya into a synagogue, mm-hmm. uh, and a whole bunch of other uh, site-specific work that they do. So Aaron kind of approached us with the idea of, would we like to do it? And it seemed to make total sense in this case. Yeah. So the play takes place in an office. Mm-hmm. So we just had to find the right kind of building, something that was big enough that could hold more than the average office. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So in fact, what we are is in a boardroom of an office building, okay. uh, which can seat about 50. So, uh, but we're, we've made it look like an office and it's supposed to be high end. So sure. the office could be quite large. And of course, we're also supposed to be in Fort McMurray, but we're downtown Toronto. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so where we're doing it is actually, it's a really interesting space. It's in a, a building called the Carpet Factory, mm-hmm. which is on Mowat Avenue, which is one block east of Dufferin. Mm-hmm. And we're just south of King. Uh, so it's kind of in the Liberty Village area. Yeah. And it's a reclaimed uh, carpet factory. Mm-hmm. So, uh, but beautifully renovated by the York Heritage uh, Group, I think they're called. And uh, so it feels uh, high end. Yeah. Uh, but at the same time, it's, it's a building in which a lot of business happens. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to be tackling um, the, I mean, it's super easy to tackle um, the issue of, of oil and climate change and that sort of thing from Ontario. Um, whereas <laughs> in Alberta, I was just reading today about a, there was a, a, yet another protest out there about them wanting to be, to be heard, that they don't feel like the rest of Canada right. is, is hearing them or, or, or sort of like sympathetic to, to their, their, their needs as a, as a, as a town and things like that. So, um, we're very divided in yep. this country on this particular topic. Totally. Um, almost, almost east to west, I yeah. think. Mm-hmm. Well, because you have a, you have an NDP government in Alberta who's pro oil and pro yeah. pipeline, which is crazy to me as an Ontarian. It's you know. crazy to me too, but I mean, I think that uh, there, there isn't a, an NDP government in Alberta that could be elected. No, absolutely. Being anti-oil. Absolutely true. So you're right. It is. It's. It's a very contentious and divisive, uh, divisive subject matter. And so you you approach it from your point of view, sure. and you know, and just go. This is what I believe. Yeah. Having said that, I would think that I would hope that if someone from Alberta came to see the play, mm. that they would hear hear a lot of their own arguments and their own point of view mm. referenced in it. It's not yeah. a one sided discussion. It's mm. not um, an easy discussion that these two men are having they are going at each other hammer and tong and uh with arguments that are very convincing on both sides it should be because it'd be super easy to be like well that's right. You know, on the on the left. Well, when you said when you said it's yeah. an, it's easy to do a show about it, it's actually not yeah, easy well, to do I mean, it. In order easy. to it, in order to uh, in order to really, as David was saying, in order to really make the arguments mm. uh, powerful. Yeah. And there's a lot of so uh, David's character, who is the big oil exec. There's a, a huge amount of what he says, mm. which is very true. Yeah. Which is 
uh, and it's uh, he talks a lot about this is what people want. Mm-hmm. We're just providing a service and yeah. a, and a product that people want, which is absolutely true. Yeah. Yeah, you know, yeah. and it's like. What are we willing to give up yeah. in order to save our climate? Yeah. Are we willing to give up ever driving a car or taking mm. a plane or, you know, heating our houses with oil yeah. or, you know, a million? What we're talking about is a major lifestyle change. Sure. And there's, a, we all have a lot of questions about that. So it's, it is a fascinating argument. I think it, it, we're not, in a sense, putting big oil on trial as much as we're putting all of us on trial in a, to a certain degree. Oh, sure. Because, I mean, if, if, if there was a will, we would make changes exactly. and we would demand change. Instead, exactly. we are happy to, to drive our cars around the city and to, to fly everywhere and to, to, uh, to use oil. One of the statistics that we have in, uh, in, from our research, that we found in, from our research, was there was, uh, I think it was the Wall Street Journal, did a survey finding out what the average North American would be willing to spend in order to fight climate change mm-hmm. and where was the drop-off when yes. it became too expensive for them. And the drop-off was $10 a month. Mm-hmm. So people would be willing to spend $10 a month but no more than that to fight climate change. And as soon as it got over $10, they went, that's too expensive. Wow. And there was a recent um, uh, study uh, I read about uh, the people of Quebec mm. who were discussing exactly the same thing. And the, the majority, 67%, I believe, uh, were in favor of, um, of taking action, having a carbon tax mm-hmm. to solve the problem of, of climate change. But, um, but if that meant the price of gas going up 50 cents a liter... Yeah. Suddenly, the 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 support uh, dwindled to a single digit support. You know, so uh, so there is, I think, a huge paradigm shift that we have to uh, we have to get our heads around. We have to tax carbon. We have to put a price on carbon emissions, and and if we can get our head around that, I think that will be a great first step. Um, so I, for one, am completely in support of our prime minister's call for a national carbon tax, mm-hmm. yeah. and uh, I hope he uh, hope that will be a, a first small step in the right direction. It'll be really difficult because people love to be to be armchair uh, environmentalists until it costs them something, and that's the yeah. it's it's going to call, to require change right. in order to to, to yeah. do something. It's it's extreme change, and yeah. it's it's lifestyle change. It's mm-hmm. a way of thinking change. That's why Naomi Klein's book. This changes everything. It's called that. And it does change everything. It's a way of looking at decision making and that that every decision is based upon this. Every political decision is based on trying to save the planet. And it's so dire. Yeah. It is so, so dire. Yeah. Uh, and we hear, you know, how dire it is, whether it's the UN uh, climate report, whether it's the American government's mm-hmm. yeah. uh, uh, reports. Uh, and, it's, and, you know, we've got 10 years to, to, to meet the targets of Paris. And we're not, you know, no, it's highly, most, highly unlikely that we're going to get even close to it. polluters have already washed their hands of Exactly. It, so. And the fact that it's all voluntary, yeah. there's nobody's really, uh, there's, yeah. yeah. There's I mean, the most they were able to do in Poland recently was to say okay here's the rule book yes yeah. <laughs> not how do we enforce the rule book yeah. but here's a rule book mm. yeah yeah, yeah. So. and i mean what what was your process of 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 coming up with the the like, realistic arguments uh, i mean i think that if we come from toronto it's it's a lot easier to think of the the anti oil argument as opposed to the the pro oil argument Mm. um how did you what was the process of getting yourselves into the headspace to come up with and find the arguments that were equally as compelling as the arguments uh uh, against oil yeah yeah well i uh to be to be honest um uh, there was a huge amount of information on the websites of major oil companies operating in the athabasca area in fort mcmurray they were very convincing, mm. and um, uh, depending on your point of view, of course, but uh, the steps they are taking to reduce their carbon emissions and water usage, mm. um, the development of carbon capture as a way of um, mediating against carbon emissions, um, we're all beginning to change from uh, oil to natural gas, which would be a huge step forward. Um, so they're... they're uh, it, 
it, it, there was a time when the oil companies uh, might have been denying it or uh, confusing the argument about it. But now um, I think they very much want to be part of the game. Mm. They want to be the energy companies yeah. of the future. The thing is uh, just how fast, Phil, we're going to move. Mm. Uh, and, uh, and in the play, uh, I think that we uh, create uh, a character who feels that urgency really, really deeply. Mm. I mean, what happens if you really feel that all these dire warnings about um, people, mass um, uh, extinction events, uh, uh, millions of people storming across borders, uh, starvation, not being able to feed ourselves. If that is our future, uh, can you imagine an individual motivated by that to try and make change? And uh, that's the character that Richard is playing in the play. And uh, I think it's a very timely and dramatic uh, way of looking at this issue mm-hmm. that's not uh, just an exchange of facts and figures. Right. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, so David was uh, defending my character. I'll defend his uh, uh, to a certain degree, which is that I think uh, David went in with the agenda of we cannot dismiss this guy mm-hmm. as purely, uh, you know, the mouthpiece for big oil. Right. We have to understand his point of view. Mm-hmm. We have to even, like, at, I remember at a certain point, uh, David and I were talking like, it'd be great if it was almost like a Shaw play where you, you're listening to some of these arguments, like, uh, you know, like when Shaw would write uh, an arms dealer mm-hmm. and try and make it as sympathetic as possible, or at the very least, as realistic as possible, and challenge our own preconceptions about about every, anything of this. So we we wanted to do the same thing, where the audience will, and hopefully we've we're achieving that, where the audience will go, he's got a real good point, yeah. and then go, yeah, but the other guy's got a really good point too, mm-hmm. and yeah, but the other guy, you know. So there is a sense of of, of almost like an internal debate uh, of each individual, mm-hmm. never mind as an audience member. Yeah. And so hopefully, as well as we were saying, that there's an implication. So we did a run-through just this afternoon, and one of our producers who hasn't uh, seen or heard anything since the original read-through, so she hadn't even seen us stage it, and so and we just did the staging, and she just went, uh, there's a kind of trial scene in the center of the play, and she felt, I felt like I was on trial. Mm. And we went, that's great. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, yeah, exactly yeah. what we want, is like mm-hmm. that it's to... It's to implicate us all in this issue. It's not these guys who represent extreme points of view. We all represent those extreme points of view, and we're all grappling with the same issues, and it's a question of what we do with all of this. Mm-hmm. Hmm. I'd like to take a moment and uh, uh, back up away from, from Athabasca for a second. I want to talk to you guys about your your theater origin stories and, and how you... Uh, not only came to write Athabasca, but even before that, uh, how you got into the theater and, and, and what made you want to do it. Well, ironically, we've known each other for many, many years, mm-hmm. David and I. In fact, our origins go back to almost the beginning uh, of our interest in theater. So David and I first met each other. It just goes to show how old we are. <laughs> January of 1971 which is a while ago, January of 1971. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And we were both at Dawson College in Montreal together studying theater. And we did a show together. David, at the end of that school year, went off to England uh, to study. And I went about uh, eight or nine months later to another school to study. We kept in touch then, uh, saw each other while we were there. Uh, David and I, we came back to Canada around the same time, which was around mm-hmm. 76 mm-hmm. or so. Uh, David started a, a theater for young audience uh, company. He asked me to work for him a couple of times, so we worked together then. And all through the intervening years, uh, we've kept uh, in touch and have collaborated. Mm-hmm. But mostly, it's been David writing and me directing and dramaturging mm-hmm. his work. Uh, there was a few exceptions sure. to that, but most of it was that. And mm. most, if not all, was in theater for young audiences in that field. Yes. So it must have been three or four uh, pieces mm-hmm. that we did together. And it was always a good collaboration. Mm. Uh, it kind of it felt like a good team in, that, uh, in those roles. 
So when we came to this, and it was co-writing and co-performing, we'd never done that. Right. So I, we've each done it with different partners. I did Two Pianos, Four Hands with Ted Dykstra. Mm-hmm. I did a couple of pieces with Diane Flax. Uh, uh, David, what? I've done uh, Head of Ted, Divin Dobbin, The Journey Home, The mm-hmm. Book of Miracles, all two-handers, health class, all two people. We wrote it together. We hired a mm-hmm. director to come in, and we created those pieces for us to perform. Mm-hmm. So we both had a decent amount of experience in that form, yeah. and I think probably not too far away, too, in terms of how... Those pieces were developed. In every case, uh, certainly with me, and I imagine with you as well, it was started through improvisation mm-hmm. before it kind of got down to sitting down and writing it. So we were able to have a kind of uh, methodology mm-hmm. that we had each worked individually yeah. that we were able to adapt to working with each other, both in terms of developing the work and uh, writing it together, and mm. now we'll, we'll, we're moving into the performing it together yeah, stage. Yeah, yeah. Before you ended up at the same theater school. We um, didn't go to the same theater school. Before you both ended up in, in Montreal. In, in, yeah, well, we were both from Montreal. Okay. Right. Before you ended up in theater school. Right. Um, what drew you to theater? Mm. What was it that, that made you want to do it, and what was it that made you know that you wanted to do that for your life's work? You want our conversion story? I do, I do, absolutely, I do. <laughs> or addiction? <laughs> I think it's more it's of an addiction well, story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, there it usually is a, a coup. You know, it's usually a, a, can be a moment. Mm-hmm. Um, my moment was uh, that my my grandfather, when he came to Montreal, used to take the family out to see a musical, mm-hmm. uh, a road touring musical production that would be done in in the city and uh i was not allowed to go to them Uh, i was too young Mm. but this one year i was finally old enough that i could go and the show was the sound of music so i was sitting in the audience uh a little blonde boy right about 10 years old and i was looking up at the stage and i saw seven blonde kids Mm -hmm. from that story uh, in descending order. They were singing. I was singing in a choir, a church choir at the Mm -hmm. time. Uh, uh, But they were up on the stage. Mm -hmm. And I was riveted to these Mm -hmm. kids who were up there. And I turned over to my mother and said, whispered, how did they get up there? <laughs> and uh, I think if it had been a modern mother, she would have immediately uh, enrolled me in acting classes. But my mother just told me to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> Where did you go from there? Did you, did you, did you pester to get into acting classes? Well, no, I just always thought it was, sounded like a nice thing to do. And so uh, when I got to high school, which was the first time that anything, any such thing was offered, mm-hmm. um, I auditioned for uh, a play called Thieves' Carnival. And um, I was playing a deaf mute, which uh, was a very small role, but featured role. And I remember uh, being quite unconscious to the fact that I would be performing in front of an audience. I was just keen to be on stage. But when I came out for my curtain call, mm. the applause swelled mm. when the audience saw me. Mm. And I remember thinking, that feels very nice. <laughs> and uh, I'm afraid it was a very shallow reason for wanting to go <laughs> on stage, but I'm it sure was a part of it. I'm sure that it's not. you're not the only person who's no, had that. No, of course not. That rush that's made them decide that's what they want to do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, for me it was uh, it was a kind of circuitous route in some ways. So uh, I was a bit of a piano nerd, and I studied piano a lot, and I always loved performing. And then when I was in my teens, probably my mid-teens, I used to go to a music camp outside of Montreal called Jeunesse Musicale. And it was a relatively high-level camp, and you'd have to sit there and practice like six to eight hours a day in the woods, in these little huts in the woods. And it was kind of torturous, you know, especially for me. I, I knew I was kind of coming to the end of my classical music journey. And But at the end of 
the the camp sessions, there was a theater program. Mm -hmm. It was it was in French. It was a it was outside of Montreal, and all the teachers and the uh, students were in uh, were francophone. But I found myself spending more and more time. I had done shows in high school, like David, uh, which was just fun. And but I remember spending all my time watching those people in rehearsal, and going, now they're doing art. But they're not by themselves. Mm. There's, they're doing it uh, all together, yeah, yeah. and boys and girls, and the girls are all hanging off the boys, and everybody's flirting with each other, and mm. they're just laughing. Mm. They're having a fantastic time, and they're doing art, but it's doing it together. Right. And that was kind of going. That makes sense to me. I knew I kind of wanted to be an artist, mm. and that kind of made sense to me. But it didn't. Even then, it didn't happen until I did my registration for Dawson uh, out of high school, which was a CJEP in Montreal, which is where David and I met. And I was going and doing the registration and going around from table to table. And I was doing a, a one program which had four sixths of my classes were dealt with there. So I only had two to go. And I thought, well, maybe I'll do a French or a philosophy or a political science or something. I was just kind of searching. And I walked by the drama table. And by the time I left the drama table, both of those credits yeah, yeah, yeah. were in theater. Mm -hmm. And then more and more I did it. And then finally, uh, after Dawson, I auditioned for theater school in England. Mm -hmm. And so it was uh, – I wasn't one of those kids who went from the earliest memory – saying, I want to be an yeah. actor, which actually happened to my children. Right. Uh, they've known ever since they can breathe that they wanted to be actors, and they are. Mm -hmm. But that wasn't the case with me. And uh, But now I'm stuck with it. Well, I mean, people come to it at different, at different yeah. phases in their life. Exactly. And, and, and you, you've spent a lot of time writing. Mm. Um, when, did, when did writing become a thing that you wanted to do? When I realized I hated reading plays, <laughs> uh, it became easier to write the play than read it. Mm. I knew, uh, you know, I was writing, I wanted a play that I could perform with a friend of mine. You know, we were in our early 20s. I wanted to produce a show. Uh, so we could, I could, you know, try and go to the library and try and find plays for two actors that suited our situation. Mm. Or I could write the play. Mm. And so that really, I was just trying to write a part that I could bear to perform, that I, mm. that I was excited about performing. Um, so I wasn't really thinking of myself as a playwright, and those early plays were um, uh, very uh, simple, uh, comic. Yeah. Uh, I started, my comic voice came very quickly, mm -hmm. um, but uh, I, w I was most interested in acting. But then, uh, I guess... Uh, when I hit 40, um, I had one play, which Richard directed, um, Danny King in the Basement, mm -hmm. which was a really good play. Yeah. And it was very, very well received. It was a play about child poverty in Toronto, mm -hmm. inspired by the Golden Report. And, um, and suddenly I thought, oh, uh, maybe this is something that I could turn my attention to more fully. Mm. And so slowly but surely, I, I moved my direction more towards playwriting. I was still producing. I was still the artistic director of Rosny Theatre, uh, co-artistic director and then artistic director. But I began to write. And then uh, about eight years ago, I gave up my producing position and focused full-time mm. on acting. So this is really the... F uh, sorry focused completely on playwriting. Mm -hmm. So this is the really the first time I've been on stage in eight years, um, having been a, uh, having just been a, a solo playwright. When you made the decision to, to, to give up the, the producing and to focus on, on, on playwriting, was there, uh, was there a certain amount of fear involved in, in making that change? What was, what was that? Was was it a thing that you were afraid of or a thing that you just felt driven to do? It was a thing I felt driven to do. I knew, you know, that I wasn't going to be able to live forever. <laughs> and uh, I knew that before I died, I wanted to focus on some uh, challenging pieces. Mm -hmm. And I knew that I wasn't going to be able to do it part-time. Mm -hmm. I felt I needed to give it my full attention. 
And I certainly was scared. I was uh, scared financially. And I was also scared uh, emotionally because I didn't know whether the plays that I wanted to write would ever be produced. Mm. And that is uh, a real a playwright's nightmare. Oh, sure. That you write something and you devote all this time and effort and then it's somehow stillborn. I think that's why a lot of younger playwrights are so focused on self-producing. Right. Mm. Because the idea of writing something and then sh desperately shopping it around in the hopes that somebody will produce it is just daunting. daunting. It's a huge, yeah. totally daunting. Yeah. yeah. It's impossible. Yeah. I mean, it happens all the time, mm -hmm. but essentially it's impossible. Yeah. But, and that's what I did. Mm -hmm. I was the young man who was running around, uh, you know, uh, uh, producing his own show. Mm -hmm. But when I, when I left Rosny Theatre eight years ago, I said, uh, I'm not going to produce. Right. Uh, unless I can find a theater who wants to produce this play, mm. it will not be produced. Mm. Mm. Richard, how did you start uh, come to directing? Well, I, uh, I think I always knew I wanted yeah. to direct. So even when I was, uh, I went to RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London. And even while I was there, I kind of had, I knew I kind of wanted to direct. Mm. I hadn't really done it yet. Uh, but uh, one teacher in particular kind of outed me uh, while I was there, and she went, "You know, you, you're, some of your acting work has a bit of an objectivity. It's almost like you're looking at everything instead of being in it." And do you want to be a director? And I went, "Yeah, you kind of found me out." <laughs> and so, um, uh, and again, it would almost happen through music. So I was able to work my way through theater school as my Joe job was a musical director. Mm. So as a young professional artist, even after I graduated, I could get musical directing gigs. And I was in my early twenties. And so, and I, so I was starting to kind of learn about directing through musical directing. And then I came back to Canada in the mid seventies. And then I went, okay, I'm going to start doing it. And then bit by bit, I did more and more. And, uh, for a while, I also was the associate artistic director first at Young People's Theatre and then at Canadian Stage. I did that for about seven or eight years. At a certain point, I thought I may want to be an artistic director. And then I realized, no, I don't really want to do that. And it's for me, ironically, I came to producing much later than David did. And so it was kind of fun to begin with. And I said, I don't mind producing, but as long as I'm producing, doing producing stuff for my work. Sure. So whether it's, you know, writing grants or, yeah. you know, whatever, doing whatever needs to be done. And so, and there was, were times where there were years, especially in my thirties and forties, where I was, I would say, directing 80% of the time to acting 20. Mm. Uh, but now, and for, since I've left working full time at different theaters and gone back to freelancing, I think it's about 50, 50 mm. and plus writing yeah. whenever I, I do that. So, and that's the way I like it best. Mm. I like it when it's half and half sure. approximately. Yeah. So I just finished directing uh, a show at George Brown uh, for the graduating class and uh, before even this closes I'm directing an opera for tapestry so uh, that's always kind of uh, a fun you know you're going from directing to acting to, to, yeah, to directing yeah. and so I like that yeah. now you guys had worked together before um, but when you came to to writing together that's a, a different relationship than yes so how how was how did you navigate that what That's a really good question. <laughs> well, we I guess we're still figuring that well, out. Are yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, it is. Uh, uh, how did you negotiate it? Well, we negotiated. We, it was a negotiation. Yeah. Um, we started by writing individual drafts mm. of the play. We had talked out the, the general storyline of the play. Mm -hmm. And then we just thought it would be faster if one of us, uh, you know, went away and just wrote the play. Mm -hmm. And um, so we did that. We wrote you know, two complete um, drafts of the play, mm. and we didn't like them. <laughs> well, we liked our own. Yes. <laughs> we just didn't like the other one. For good yeah. reason. Yeah. For good reasons. Yeah, it was, it, it, it somehow, uh, the, it became um, a polemic, um, and uh, it was, it was just a, an exchange of statistics. So we, we decided that we would uh, start improvising. Mm. And so we rented a space and we would meet and we would, uh, uh, we had divided the, the play into sections 
Uh, so we had a beat sheet, a sense of what would happen in each of those, like a, almost like a commedia dell'arte uh, mm-hmm. cheat sheet, yeah. scene, 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 scene. But these were beats. And then we would improvise them and record them. Mm-hmm. Although I think actually there was a, you're missing one, one step, which was we didn't have that beat sheet to begin with. So we had a basic idea. We went, you're right about the five sections. Uh-huh. And we went, okay, this is this section. Let's improvise it. And we would improvise it several times and record it, and then made a beat sheet from those. That's right. And then we would make that beat sheet and go, okay, so this was great, so we want to include that. This was not, this Mm. was like a dead end. Mm -hmm. Let's not bother with that. Mm. And so then bit by bit, we did it several times, and and then we honed it so that we could come up with a beat sheet. Mm. And then we started to get together and started writing. But sometimes he would go, okay, you take the first half of section one and mm. I'll take the second half. Mm. And then we'll meet later and then we'll critique each other's sections and say what works and what doesn't, what's clear, what's too clear, etc., etc. And then kind of build it up bit by bit from that. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, as David says, you know, some of it is negotiation. So one law we have, which is finally, anybody can say anything about anything. In terms of each other, in terms of the of the what the writing is, mm-hmm. but if we come to an impasse, a final impasse, whosever line it is, whoever whosever mouth it comes out mm-hmm. of gets the final say. Okay. okay. So, but hopefully, that doesn't happen until much mm-hmm. later. Yes. So even now, as we're rehearsing, we go. You know what? I think we can trim that. Mm. I don't think we need to say all of that. Or that's a little unclear. I think we need to clarify that a little bit more, or whatever it might be. So, and I imagine we'll probably do this all the way through the first run, at yeah. the very least. You know, it's uh, and it's it's happened with the other uh, shows that I'm sure it's happened with you and the uh-huh. other shows that you've done. You know, uh-huh. we, you know the final stage, even as we think we're getting really close. Close yeah. to the final draft, you know. It's, you know, it's, any changes we're making now are pretty minute. Uh, uh, but the final thing is the audience. Being yeah, the there. audience will tell you more. Than, Way more. Yeah. yeah. Is it as funny as we think it is? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Or is something else funny that we didn't think was? Mm-hmm. Or is uh, this tension being uh, stretched to the right limit? Or is it dissipating? Yeah. And if it is, why? So those kinds of things uh, we'll only learn. And you can't even tell after one performance. We're only doing 12. We may not even know fully after 12. I speak of somebody who's done one show that I've co-written for almost a thousand times. Mm-hmm. And the amount that you learn at, at that length of time yeah. is extraordinary. Yeah. And so that there's... but. I doubt if we're going to do this a thousand times, but uh, so we'll learn a lot by doing it 12 and then we'll see where we go. And also if there is a future life, what, where we go from there. Do you anticipate a point where you no longer can tell who wrote what? And, and are you there yet? Or do you, do you figure that, that that's around the corner? Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm there yet. I'm, I'm there, there now. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a few words that um, that I would not say. Like, uh, I my character says at one point, uh, "You're going to give yourself a coronary." <laughs> That's just because you can't say it. Though. Yeah, <laughs> you can't I pronounce never, it. I would never use that word. Coronary. <laughs> yeah. coronary. I, that's just not part of my vocabulary. So I know for a fact <laughs> sure, that that's Richard's word. Sure. And then uh, there's another um, there's another part where there's a little rhyme. Mm-hmm. One, two, three. The bumblebee, the rooster crows, and away he goes. And I know that that comes from me. Yes. Because uh, that was a childhood a rhyme we used to chant as we were wading into cold water mm. at the lake. And we would be encouraging ourselves to jump in. So there's a few things. But overall, yeah. uh, this has been thoroughly, thoroughly discussed. And as I say, it's come out of improvisations yeah. where... Um, and sometimes, did we change characters at all? Did we ever improvise the other person's character? I don't think so. I don't, I don't think remember we did. doing that. That might have been an interesting mm. um, a way to go, but... Uh, 
But, but and, and also sometimes the line may have come from somebody and then it got rewritten and rewritten and rewritten and rewritten mm. so that it has no relation to the original right. one. Yeah. But as David says, I'm, I'm exactly the same. It's like there's a whole there's whole sections of it where you just go, well, you know, it's a mix mishmash of both of us and putting it together and taking it apart and putting it back together yeah. again and, you know, and uh, constantly reworking it and massaging it. And so you just don't know. Mm-hmm. But then every once in a while. You know, there's something like, oh, yeah, I remember coming up with that. And uh, or, yeah, that's definitely his. And I'm very aware with this play that it is um, a play that is, as they say, torn from the headlines. Mm -hmm. And so uh, uh, we have to be up to date. And because the landscape of um, climate change and global warming is changing, Mm -hmm. we need to uh, we need to be aware of that. And if uh, parts of the play seem uh, dated, then we have to move in. And we've done that Um, even on a a, a, I was adding a couple of lines just the other day, Mm. um, which was reflecting uh, some of my more recent reading. Mm. We also did, we did a gigantic amount of research. And in general, I would say, although not, again, not, like a lot of the things that we tried to say, okay, you do this, I'll do that. So we would start that way, but those boundaries got, were were bleeding constantly just because you'd read something that fascinated you and you'd follow that link or whatever. So because I'm playing the environmentalist, chances are, you know, I did a lot of reading on that side of stuff and a little bit of research and interviews and stuff. But, you know, and then also David especially would constantly be sending me links to, oh, this was, read this, this was in the Globe and Mail yesterday, or this is from the New York Times a couple of days ago, or whatever. And so, so there was a lot of that kind of stuff. And it, and as David says, it's constantly changing. You know, it's like, uh, uh, you know, just Poland. Like I thought Poland might have more effect, but it, I don't think it actually does. I think it's pretty ineffective and it's, there's not a lot that uh, is worth even talking about in our show. No, no. Although, I, I mean, I think we are making incremental progress and I think there's progress which is, uh, which is not newsworthy. Um, I think the um, the drop in the price of solar panels is a huge thing. Yeah. I think that um, the fact that um, General Motors is closing the Oshawa plant so they can make electric and self self driving cars only right. Uh, yeah. uh, the fact that Volvo will only be making electric cars uh, in the very near future. Yeah. So the transportation sector is very um, is ve- has some very hopeful changes mm-hmm. as well as um, new ways to heat uh our homes yeah. uh the you know the phil it's just um we don't have a lot of time no that's exactly well, that's it the, and, uh, that's the thing is, that's the thing yeah. that makes uh, it an unstoppable force you know we need to change that somehow in uh, you know something that needs to happen but the resistance is um the amount of work that needs to be done is enormous and again there's and there's uh governments are being elected not just in the states and in ontario but around the world that are quote unquote populist right wing regressive uh and who believe that climate change is a hoax and you know trump is wants to dig for coal you know uh, uh doug ford is rolling back all the environmental protections and it's and this is happening and you're just going, I can't believe it. It's happening. I think it's happening because it, it comforts certain people. That's right. Like to be able to say, doesn't matter, doesn't exist, keep living your life the way it is, you won't have to change. And that's exactly. comforting to people. Yes, right. Ah, I say, that's a very good I, have a line, I have a line in the play, which is people would rather die than change. Yeah, it's true. And, yeah. it's, uh, and it, it's exactly right. And, that, well, that's, and that's how Trump got elected, make America great again. Yeah. You know, it's like, it, well. When was it ever great? Yeah. You know, <laughs> or, or as I say, or, make America sexist, homophobic, racist again. For, for, for whom was it great? That's, That's right. That's right. So anyway, so it's it's. Um, I kind of vacillate. I, I don't know if it's true to say that I'm more cynical about it than you are, or less, or pessimistic than you are. Uh, I'm. I, I I tend to be. I vacillate with like huge uh, depression about mm. about the issue and uh, whether we whether we can really make significant change in time. Mm. I have my doubts, mm. perhaps more than you. I'm not sure. I, yeah, I'm, I, I'm, I, I, I do think that we will uh, 
we'll fix this, mm -hmm. but I'm not sure that we will fix it in time for a lot of people. Yeah. I think that there will be some suffering. Mm -hmm. And that's a part of the interesting color yeah. um, of the issue is, is that uh, we in the West can afford to um, uh, mediate mm -hmm. against these uh, extreme, but uh, in other countries that just don't have the resources. Yeah. And so there's going to be a lot of suffering and perhaps uh, oh, but that suffering won't be just them. I mean, we've got forest fires in California, yeah. forest fires in British Columbia, um, invasive species drops in insects, coral dying. I mean, it's going to hit everybody. Yeah. And right. when it, when it does, when it really does, and we see, maybe we'll have a Pearl Harbor moment mm. and a lot of change will happen very quickly. Mm. Maybe. One. The problem or... The, the difference, though, with Pearl Harbor was that it was, or even, say, the World Trade Center or something like that, it was mm -hmm. one event yeah. that kind of changed everything. Yeah. Whereas you can't look upon it like that with this. There's not going to be one event. It's going to be an accumulation of lots of different mm -hmm. things. It's not going to be, though, it would have to be one huge, gigantic natural catastrophe in order to do it, yeah. which I, I can't, even if it's a huge uh, flood or something, a tidal wave that kills 200,000 people like it did, 15 years ago mm -hmm. that didn't seem to to do anything you know so it's like uh, i don't know if it can be that one event mm -hmm. like yeah. like pearl harbor or the world trade center or something like that mm -hmm. it's so that i guess that's the what makes it harder mm -hmm. you know it makes it harder because it's it's about changing the way we think yeah. but it might be something very symbolic it might be the fact that uh, there are no more wild animals in Yellowstone Park. Mm. There may be something that uh, really resonates with people on an emotional level, on a cultural level. Mm. And I think this is where uh, the arts can play a role, is, is that we may not be able to change legislation. Mm. We're certainly not going to change legislation, but we may be able to um, add to the story that is creating a culture out of which change will become inevitable, that people will just naturally, well, of course, we're going to vote for this kind of thing and lobby for this kind of legislation. Do you think that's why some governments uh, um, try to to uh, make cuts to the arts? Totally. Because they, ultimately, there's the realization that the arts are dangerous to the status quo. Absolutely. I think that's exactly what's going on. Well, I mean, with Ford, it's it's clear also that yeah. very few artists, if any, vote for him. Yeah. You know, it's just not his base and it's not uh, it's not his constituency. So he, what does he care? Yeah. In fact, if anything, he wants to punish those who would vote NDP or liberal. Yeah. So uh, I think that's it's quite clear. And yes, in general, if the arts are doing their job, they are stat uh, challenging the status quo. That's exactly what... Uh, their job is to do, uh, you know, so it's, uh, I think that's exactly why, why it happens. Mm. Yeah. So um, just to, to jump over to the next stage for a second, how did, um, who was it who first brought this show to next stage? Because you have to submit to next stage and, yeah. and sort of make a pitch. So who took, who brought this show to, to next stage? It was Aaron and Julie uh, as uh, co-producers. And uh, they put it together the application. Mm -hmm. We also have Marquee Entertainment uh, on board also as a co-producer. Marquee, uh, well, uh, I work with them constantly uh, through Two Pianos, Four Hands, but also Colin Rivers, who's part of Marquee, is also David's writing agent. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, so we have a, 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 a relationship with them. So between Marquee and Convergence, mm -hmm. Aaron and Julie, they did the application. Dave and I just wrote a little bit of artist statement <laughs> stuff, but they put it all together with the budget and everything else. And we were, ironically, I think we were very uh, pessimistic about whether it would be accepted. They had never done a site-specific yeah. show before, so uh, but they were encouraged to apply by the Next Stage staff. And, uh, you know, Aaron and Julie are really good producers and they put together a really good application and um, so, uh, and it was accepted. And as... I remember thinking, okay, so the good news is we got accepted. The bad news is we got accepted. <laughs> now we got to do it. That is the fringe mantra, isn't that's it? Right. Good news, yeah. bad news. That's right. Oh, yeah. you got, now you got to yeah. do it. Yeah. And you have very little time. And, of course, we have very little money. Mm -hmm. There's no, uh, you know, it's, it's uh, 
we're basically doing this as an investment in the mm. future of the show. Sure. Uh, and everybody else who's involved, we have a great team mm. of you know, our stage manager is top notch, our yeah. designers are top notch. Yeah. You know, uh, we have Richard Lee who's doing both sound design as well as the fight. We have a, a pretty large fight in mm. the show. He's doing that. And so it's, uh, uh, so everybody's kind of uh, investing in a hopeful future, mm-hmm. or and even if that future doesn't happen, it's we hope the the show is still really worth doing just yeah. on its own terms and yeah. whether or not it has a future. But I think we're hopeful that it will. I mean, isn't that really why we do people do Fringe? Why people do Next Stage is for often the, the investment in the future. Often, the, yeah. yeah, yeah. Yeah, and uh, we've had some interest from various different theaters. Nice. Like, clearly, it's it's an economic show to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, it's only two people. It's not a huge amount of uh, production requirements. Yeah. Uh, it's very tourable, mm-hmm. uh, e- easily brought into various different spaces, different kinds of spaces. Right. We're doing it in the round. It doesn't have to be done site-specifically. Yeah. It could be just done on a stage in a proscenium mm-hmm. or in three quarters or in the round. It could be done in any of those different configurations too. What, I mean, if, you, if you're already thinking about, about that sort of thing, are, what is the impact of taking it from the round to a proscenium or a different, different it's a, I think it's a different experience. Yeah. Um, with this, especially because we're in a relatively small, relatively small mm-hmm. environment, I think the advantage of this is that people really feel like they're part of the action mm-hmm. that they're and so I think it might even add to the sense of implication that they may feel mm-hmm. because they're right there we're literally as far away as this from yeah. our audience mm-hmm. so whether we ever want to lose that or not is something we'll have to decide mm-hmm. and you know there's it's great to do it in a small space but there's financial implications course, yeah. to that yeah. so I'm I'm sold on the on the site specific uh, mm-hmm. element of it. Rather than watching um, two men in an office, mm-hmm. the audience is actually walking into the office, mm-hmm. sitting in the office with the two men. Yeah. Um, it seems uh, so much stronger. Yeah. So um, I'd love to keep it. Mm-hmm. And there are lots of festival sites which would welcome. Um, an innovative uh, staging uh, idea like this, yeah. um, but but would we turn down the opportunity to do it on a, on a main stage in a proscenium setting? I, I certainly don't think we would. I think, <laughs> I, I, well, I think we're just too committed to the uh, to the subject and sure. to the way we're approaching it, yeah. and there's no reason why it shouldn't be um, very successful, or even for other actors uh, to do mm. it. Uh, sure. to perform it in um, uh, in other productions. I guess we'll, you know, we'll just have to see and, yeah. and make our choices uh, as they come up. Yeah. But, um, yeah, and there's already been some interest from other places. And nice. So we'll see. Uh, yeah. We'll just see whether, uh, you know, it's, well, I've always felt like you gain something and you lose something. So you gain something by the, the site-specific nature, yeah. the intimacy of it all and the uh, being part of it. And, of course... You can only get in 50. Yeah. So, uh, but maybe that's fine. So we'll just see. Yeah. All right. Well, I look forward to it. Thanks. Thank Thanks. you so much, you guys. Thanks, Thanks for Phil. Thank you. This has been a Homebody Productions production.